0: Pacifica Radio Network and from KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. Progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schott. Many people are engaging in activism and protest of the activities of our new president. My guest today reminds us that our activism should not only be defensive, resisting what is bad, also, it needs to be proactive and engaging in building the beloved community. Today, we're going to talk about a condition that is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. It is a condition that is completely preventable, hunger. Why are so many people in the world, why is anyone in the world malnourished? What can we do about it? The answer, according to today's guest, is simple. We can end hunger by the force of law. Today's guest is John Teton. He's the director of the International Food Security Treaty. The website is treaty.org. The International Food Security Treaty, or IFST, aims to establish enforceable international law guaranteeing the right to be free from hunger and to oblige countries to establish their own related national laws. The International Food Security Treaty has been recognized as a crucial missing link in the world's efforts to eliminate hunger by leading figures in the United Nations, anti-hunger organizations, the U.S. Congress, and court system, and national religious groups. John Teton lives in Lake Oswego, Oregon. He's a writer. He's written three science fiction novels. The novels are Appearing Live at the Final Test, Upsurge, and Elevation, the Cave Logs of New Hale, Tibet. John's work with the International Food Security Treaty is not science fiction. Instead, it is a shift to recognize in our consciences that hunger is a crime like slavery. It is a crime that, like slavery, can be ended by force of law. John has written two articles about the International Food Security Treaty. In 2010, he published in the Yale Journal of International Affairs an article entitled The Armless Hand The Call for Anti Hunger Law and the International Food Security Treaty. This article was followed in 2016 by an article in the Harvard International Review called On the Origin of a Hunger-Free Species by Means of Enforceable Natural Law. John Teton is a graduate from Harvard and studied filmmaking at New York University. His idea for the International Food Security Treaty arose from his notes on his novel, Upsurge. He's with me in the studio. Welcome, John. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. This past August, you wrote an article for Harvard International Review on the origin of a hunger-free species by means of enforceable natural law. And you wrote in there that there is no death more avoidable than death from hunger. What's behind the inability of the human species to end hunger?
1: I would say uh, most fundamentally, it is a mindset that has prevailed for basically eons that accepts uh, without much examination or evidence that hunger is inevitable and uh, sometimes referred to as just part of the human condition. And therefore, the the I guess I should take one step to the side to say what this treaty is. It aims to get nations to commit to fulfill the human right of freedom from hunger, which has been recognized internationally since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights which was agreed upon at the UN uh, without a single dissenting vote in 1948. So the aim is to get uh, nations to commit to uh, fulfill that human right, but to protect it as well with national and international laws that are enforceable. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, human rights generally have been expressed in the kind of aspirational context without uh, a serious um, commitment to enforce them and this tendency goes back uh, quite a ways. Um, the, uh, when Lincoln was uh, in thinking about running for president he gave a speech where he spoke about the Declaration of Independence and uh, the he was uh, addressing the failure of the founders of the country to actually create equality for a great many people who were enslaved in the South. And so he said, the drafters did not mean to uh, contend that uh, all were then actually enjoying equality, nor were they about to confer it upon them. But they declared the right so that others in the future might create the enforcement mechanisms as soon as circumstances should permit. Well, that was uh, no doubt charitable in some cases. Uh, Perhaps there were signers of the Declaration who didn't really give a damn about that or would have opposed abolition of slavery. But no doubt there were others. We certainly see in the record that uh, some of them were troubled by it, including Thomas Jefferson, for example. But uh, apparently circumstances didn't permit till some 80 or 90 years later. And at that point, I have to think that uh, since all of the original signers of the document were uh, deceased, that perhaps if their ghosts were able to see it was going on, they might have been embarrassed and wished that they'd taken care of the issue when they were alive and able to do something about it themselves. Anyway, that's what this uh, treaty movement is about. Primarily, you're asking, uh, why hasn't hunger been redressed prior to this? It's because of this mindset. And so no death being more avoidable. Well, this is not lung cancer. Hunger has had a uh, perfectly satisfactory preventive measure and cure uh, since the beginning of, uh, well, even long before the rise of human beings. And that measure is called food. And there experts mm-hmm. have long agreed that there's plenty of it to go around and that it's uh, matter of distribution and ensuring that people get access to it when they can't get access to it on their own that's what this movement is about principally is showing these simple steps can be done to reverse hunger just as polio was reversed um in the late 20th century with political will being summoned and as a result of public pressure that's a rather large nutshell version
0: of uh, the answer to your question in 1948 the universal declaration of human rights declared that food should be available to all but there were no enforceable laws to accompany this declaration the international food security treaty puts teeth to the declaration as the abolition of slavery and the women's right to vote needed enforceable laws to become reality uh, so does hunger right john
1: right and uh Most social justice changes have required hard law. By hard law, it means, you know, you could say that um, there was a law uh, protecting this human right of freedom from hunger as soon as that declaration was signed. But if if it's not actually enforced, it doesn't mean much. And uh, you referred to teeth. I heard that term from or read it from a letter I got from Abner Mikva. Abner Mikva was one of President Obama's mentors. He was... uh, very well grounded realist. He served in the US Congress. He was the chief judge of the DC Court of Appeals in Washington. He was White House counsel. And he was, I think, the first, one of the very first people to see this proposal. And he uh, wrote back that um, he was pleased that it had teeth, he said it must have teeth because another uh, declaration is not going to accomplish the task. And you'll note, like, the whole 13th Amendment uh, to the Constitution that abolished slavery is only 33 words long, but some of those words were devoted to enforcement. It didn't just say slavery shall not exist. It said Congress shall have the power to enforce this article. And similarly with, um, you mentioned women's suffrage, that is uh, a great example because there was talk of expanding women's rights long before the uh, American Revolution uh, in, this, in the colonies here. And uh, yet, a guaranteed recognition of the right to vote, which I mean, from our perspective, it's shocking that it was delayed so long. Most of the country's history, women have not had that guaranteed right. But, and there was a a well-known historical moment in that movement in as early, prior to 1850, there was a convention in Seneca Falls, New York, where uh, 100 people signed a formal demand uh, that the American women in this country should have the right to vote. Unfortunately, uh, talk about the difficulty of changing mindset, even though just a few years later, uh, slavery was abolished and not long after that, former slaves who were male were given the right to vote. Uh, women did not gain that right by constitutional guarantee until 1920 and at that point I think there was only one woman left from the original Seneca Falls Convention still uh, alive and able to exercise that right. So these mo- movements take a long time. and people need to recognize, who might be despairing because things take a long time, that uh, that is the norm. I once spoke to a chief counsel um, at Amnesty International and she said, I read history at night so I can get through the day without getting too depressed. In other words, by being familiar with the way Great changes uh, of this nature for accomplishing social justice measures. Uh, it gives you it gives you the patience that's essential to accomplish something. I mean, when I've talked to people and staffers in Congress, for example, they might say something like, "There's no way we're going to get this passed in this session. Besides, we're very busy with the farm bill or with uh, we're dealing with uh, foreign aid." And so, anti-hunger groups sometimes. Uh, Well, they pat themselves on the back with good justification for accomplishing an increase in foreign aid budget lines, but that's not enough, and how do we know it's not enough? Because uh, in these last uh, close to 70 years since the Universal Declaration, there's still uh, some 800 million people suffering serious malnutrition, uh, millions of whom die every year from that, Um, and it's it's a terrible and painful death. How many people die from hunger every day? Um the figure that i have found to be most reliable uh, is about 20,000 and most of those are children. 20,000 people die from hunger every day, the and, most and,
0: and pre- should, preventable cause
1: of death. I i need to underscore that this means not just pure uh starvation from lack of calories entering the body, but because of a generalized weakness due to malnutrition, children and adults can get into a spot where they cannot, their bodies cannot handle the healing of conditions that otherwise they might be able, with with proper diet and healthcare, be able to survive, but weakened severely by malnutrition, they die on account of that.
0: Um, You quoted in your article in the Harvard International Review, uh, Amartya Zen, Amartya a Amartya Sen, yes. Amartya Sen, who said people don't starve unless someone wants them to. I mean, we are talking about political, for a long time, reasons for hunger. He's talking there about
1: actual starvation. Our treaty addresses starvation and malnutrition. Mm-hmm. So the number of people who suffer malnutrition on earth is 100 times that of the number who die in any one year. Uh, But the enlightening point that Sen was making, and he's, by the way, uh, been a supporter of this treaty for some time. In fact, when he spoke at the uh, Schnitzer Concert Hall here to a packed house a few years ago, um, he mentioned the Food Security Treaty is something that he was supportive of. The treaty arose in the wake of the Somalia famine in the early 90s, and he pointed out that people might think well there's drought in that part of the world so of course people aren't going to have enough food but actually he pointed out that there was drought that was worse to the south without starvation but there were these warlord driven famines where hunger is used as a weapon and uh it's it's actually about as cruel a weapon as anyone has ever conceived of death from hunger uh can last hundreds of hours and everybody's seen the horrible pictures that uh even a child I, I i would you know nobody's done a study like this that i'm aware of, but i would bet that children as young as three or even two can be horrified by those images and certainly older children are and i know that personally because at the time of that somalia famine um my first child was 10 years old and she saw this on uh television uh, and got very upset and said If I were old enough, I would get on a plane tomorrow and go try and help feed those people. And I said, actually, I had been thinking about that. I'd seen the pictures as well, and I had a social action group I was coordinating at the time, and I thought, well, I've got to figure out something to do to contribute to this. And I was also working to uh, incorporate whatever that might be into the book you referred to, Upsurge. But I didn't have anything in hand to talk to her about, so I just, you know, I uh, praised her thoughtfulness and so forth. Uh, That wasn't enough for her. She said, what can we do about it? I said, well, I'll I'll make some calls. And she said, "Will you make them tomorrow. So uh, that kind of underscored for me that much as we adults worldwide have Hmm. adopted this mindset that, well, what can you do? That's just the way it is. Uh, it's part of the human condition, et cetera, et cetera. These are various excuses for not taking action to to uh, solve these problems. Um, even a child could see, no, this should not happen, and we have to
0: make it not happen. In your novel, um, Upsurge, you mentioned um, ADS, A-A-D-S, acceptance of avoidable death and suffering. Uh, we suffer the disease of accepting suffering.
1: Yeah, that's the disease, it's, uh, the kids say, uh, uh-huh. the disease that cripples the spirit of whoever's got it in the body of somebody else. And ads is not a joke. Uh, right. The s- casualties from hunger, the result of this acceptance, uh, are far greater numerically even than the casualties
0: due to AIDS. If you are just joining us, this is Progressive Spirit. I'm speaking with John Teton. He's the director of the International Food Security Treaty. That website is www treaty.org. We're talking about how his idea for the treaty came about. It was in response to the famine in Somalia in the early 90s. So my thought then was, well, this, this uh,
1: famine that's obviously being caused by political, uh, for political means in Somalia. And oh, By the way, there were similar pictures of people um, in the Balkan Wars at the time. They were obviously being uh, malnourished in, in prison. There's a crime here. There ha- this has to be a crime. Uh, when you cause severe injury to somebody, that's a crime, especially if it's a mortal injury. So I started thinking, well, if it's a crime, there's got to be a law against it. So I looked around. I found this Universal Declaration, which was followed up in 1966 by a covenant in the uh, put together in the UN called the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which underscored the right to food. and. Uh, in fact, described it as fundamental, and it was the only human right that got that designation. But where was the movement to enforce that right with law? Uh, we've had no trouble coming up with laws against uh, murder, rape, armed robbery, double parking, uh, and yet here was a very grievous harm that had a law. It was. Basically outlawing it, but it wasn't being enforced. So, uh, and I, I actually have three other careers going in, it in addition to this volunteer work I do for the treaty, and I don't have, never had the luxury of, of putting full time into it. But periodically, over the next several months, I kept looking. This is pre-internet, early '90s, and I couldn't find. I got information on dozens and dozens of anti-hunger groups. None of them seemed to be pressing to take this human right seriously by granting a protection of enforceable law. So while writing that book, I just drafted in a few minutes the four, basic, four or five basic
0: principles that I thought could form a really effective law and then I started to circulate it. John Teton is the director of the International Food Security Treaty Campaign and the president of the International Food Security Treaty. It's a law that, as you mentioned, you, you drafted uh, back in 1993. It's only 700 words or so. Uh, what are the principles of this uh, food treaty? Yeah, the, uh, the principles
1: are even less. The actual draft treaty that was arrived at by conference um, between a whole bunch of people involved in this issue in the run-up to the 1996 World Food Summit. That whole treaty, which is a draft treaty, and it certainly will have some modifications as nations get around to negotiating its final form, that 700 words, the actual principles, which really spell out the whole idea, is just one long sentence. It distills down to four basic principles. The first is that signatory nations agree to guarantee minimum a nutri- uh, minimal nutrition level for people within its borders who can't get access to it on their own. It's not about getting steak and ice cream Sundays to people. It's making sure nobody suffers malnutrition or starves. The second point is that nations would have to contribute to a World Food Reserve and Resource Center. No, it's, not, it's not just food giveaways. Those are a last resort. Anything that the international community can do, uh, for example, uh, assistance with uh, agricultural means or economic measures to prevent, um, to assist them in being able to meet that guarantee, that, that would be like a, the, what a fire department is to a community. Uh, a nation could turn to this World Food Reserve and Resource Center to get help if they can't meet that guarantee, emergency help I'm referring to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The third point is they agree to establish and enforce law against the use of hunger as a weapon. That's addressing the criminal aspect of it. And finally, they would need to agree to support UN food security enforcement actions if it's proven that
0: a nation is unable or unwilling to enforce the law on its own. I'm speaking with John Teton, the director of the International Food Security Treaty. So how can people get involved? Anybody who gets involved um, in that
1: regard, and I hope everybody will because this assistance can boil down to just four minutes of work. Everybody in this country, of course we're going for all countries, but in the U.S., everyone has four elected representatives, a member of Congress, the House, two senators, and the president. So what I suggest is the minimum thing that somebody could do that's really cumulatively effective is to place calls to those four individuals and say I want you to do everything in your power to uh, advance this uh, international food security treaty. That's four minutes out of somebody's life, but uh, collectively that makes a big difference. It's a lot better than just clicking on a uh, preformed statement on a website, which a lot of groups do and encourage, but I've just seen over and over and over again that those get very little, carry very little weight in Congress. So, uh, but if somebody wishes to go further with it, and let's say they get a form letter back from their senator uh, dismissing this, I have to say I got a letter from uh, President Obama, of course, I'm sure he had nothing to do with this, I saw a picture just recently of the office where people go through all the letters, and often I know these people are not very well, they're just handling a million letters a second and they don't really give them much thought. So I. I'd, mentioned the treaty, described it, said why I hoped he would uh, get behind it, and I get a letter with his supposed signature, no doubt stamped, about climate change, which I never mentioned. A prior attempt to write to him got no response. So those things can be discouraging to people, and they should expect that they might happen. But overall, if you persist, you will find people who say, oh, this is, this is a no-brainer. This has got to be done. So again, it's, it's a long-haul Process and, uh, But even if it's just that four
0: minutes, that helps. I think your work, John Teton, my guest, uh, he is the uh, president of the International Food Security Treaty. Uh, the uh, website is www.treaty.org, and it has uh, the, the, the treaty there as well as uh, its history and uh, other information about how people can get involved in this. I mean, I, I think the very fact that w- what you've done, and, and it's, it's you. It's an individual. Uh, you started off this thing. And what you've said is, wait a second. This can happen. And uh, it and, and I think that's the thing that really needs to kick because it's for so long it's been, no, we just can't solve hunger. Like, the quote, Jesus or something. Oh, the poor will always be with you in a, a rather defeatist attitude. And we're saying, no, we, we can actually do this. And then uh, we can come together to do it. And once that starts and a ball gets rolling it takes a long time to get to get it going but once it get going it can for example there are a number of organizations already uh, that have supported the IFST uh, uh, Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations who else Uh, well there's quite a few that you could see on
1: the uh, treaties website Mm treaty.org under endorsements Um, as far as religious groups uh, this is an area that I hope to see major growth Uh, In the year ahead, we just had an event at an interfaith initiative in in, uh, Santa Barbara, California a few months ago, and people from eight different faiths had gathered there to, um, in part to hear about hunger measures generally, but in particular about this treaty. And shortly after that, I met with them via Skype uh, to help move that forward. And I think uh, basically, if you look at abolition, that too is pressed by religious leaders Mm -hmm. long before it got any kind of serious support in the congress or from the president uh, and it's because something as basic as a human right that alleviates the severe suffering of hunger it just reaches the soul you don't believe in the soul talk about conscience but whatever it is it that's why children are the first to see uh, this is a, a terrible wrong that should be corrected so that's why uh, whether or not a person is a member of a religious group uh, there is some kind of deeply embedded understanding that hunger is wrong and if you are a member of a religious group well i sure encourage you to speak to your uh, fellow shall i say co-religionists and your clergy and, and inspire them to uh, take whatever steps they can
0: to advance this treaty john thank you for this project ambitious and yet and yet very hopeful. You, you've, you've made a believer out of me. So I appreciate uh, appreciate you doing this work. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is the website to go to for links to podcasts and for more information, including uh, links to articles uh, mentioned in this program. I'm John Shuck from KBOO. Be well.